Our reading this morning comes from the poet and professor Camille T. Dungy. It's titled, Characteristics of Life. She begins with, a fifth of animals without backbones could be at risk of extinction, say scientists, according to BBC Nature News. And she writes, Ask me if I speak for the snail, and I will tell you I speak for the snail. Speak of underneathedness and the welcome of mosses, of life that springs up, little lives that pull back and wait for a moment. I speak for the damselfly, water skeet, mollusk, the caterpillar, the beetle, the spider, the ant. I speak from the time before spinelessness was frowned upon. Ask me if I speak for the moon jelly. I will tell you one thing today and another tomorrow, and I will be as consistent as anything alive on this earth. I move as the currents move with the breezes. What part of your nature drives you? You and your cubicle ought to understand me. I filter and filter and filter all day. Ask me if I speak for the Nautilus and I will be silent as the Nautilus shell on the shelf. I can be beautiful and useless if that's all you know to ask of me. Ask me what I know of longing and I will speak of distances. Between meadows of night blooming flowers, I will speak the impossible hope of the firefly. You with the candle burning and only one chair at your table must understand such wordless desire. To say it is mindless is missing the point. Before we begin today, uh, just a brief disclaimer about this sermon. If confronting a topic of existential dread is not something that you feel moved to explore today, uh, I will not feel upset if you go and grab some coffee or water or take a little stroll outside, whatever is right for you. But here we go. The information I'm sharing with you this morning isn't hidden. This is no foray into a modern-day apocrypha. No Masonic passwords and gestures. This isn't really about speakeasy catchphrases either. There's no educational barriers. You don't need a research degree to get the gist of the information out there, and I could keep going. Perhaps the only barriers here this morning are stubbornness or living a life where you're only trying to get by. I can have compassion for both of those reasons. One is about existential dread. The other is about injustice. The information I speak of here is, of course, the increasingly large heap of data concerning the global climate crisis. We no longer inhabit a world where this is a looming threat. It's here. It's impacting the world. It'll only get worse. If you hear the train coming, it's already too late. Information is aplenty. I'm not talking about information gathered just from social media, though let's be fair, there can sometimes be reputable sources posted to some social media accounts. Some good seeds amidst the thorns. But the old proverb had, a uh, parable had a point. The thorns will grow and stifle the grain eventually. At our fingertips, we have a wealth of, let's call it, reality. Pick your source. The data is strikingly similar. The UN Climate Reports, the World Meteorological Association, NASA, the journal Nature. There's so many more. I appreciate personally how NASA collates the data. 
We live in a society that, for better or for worse, likes memes. We like quick maps and charts, easily viewable and consumable data. And if I'm honest, while I love the lengthy erudite explanations, and that is one of my favorite million dollar words right there, erudite, it just has a nice sound to it. While I love it, as many you use, I suspect, love digging deep. There's something about snappy data. One glance and you have it. That's the world we inhabit today. I'm chasing this rabbit real quick about memes and easily postable graphics without having to read an article because those who would deny reality are really good at communicating that way. But anyway, I like what NASA has to offer us in 2021. Right across their climate change website is a series of quick facts with arrows indicating whether the direction something is headed is good or bad. And every single arrow is a bright red. Carbon dioxide, 417 parts per million, it's increasing. That's a red arrow. Global temperature, 2.1 degrees Fahrenheit, increasing, bright red. That's nearly 1.2 degrees Celsius, and some recent reports on NPR put it at closer to 1.4 degrees Celsius. Ice sheets are decreasing by 428 billion metric tons per year, another red arrow. Arctic ice decreasing by 13.1% per decade, a red arrow. Sea level is increasing 3.1 million millimeters per year. The city of Miami is investing billions to raise the roads on their most frequently traveled passageways. 326 zettajoules of ocean heat have been added since 1955, red arrow. What the heck is a joule, you might ask? A unit of measurement that can be used to determine, among many other things, the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of water. A zettajoule is one sextillion joules, or 10 to the 21st. I could dedicate the rest of this morning to just listing facts and projections. The Arctic is expected to be ice-free during the summer before the mid-century. Sea level will increase between one and eight feet by 2100. No matter what, one to eight feet is devastating. And vector-borne diseases such as dengue fever, Zika, and malaria could become a regular struggle in the southern United States by 2080. Though as a wealthier, more privileged nation, Maybe our mitigation resources will change that. But if you've ever lived in New England, you know that the season for Lyme disease from deer ticks is getting longer and longer and longer. We're off to a cheerful start this morning, aren't we? Aren't you glad you came to church? Aren't you glad you logged in? But don't worry, I still have hope here. And if you've ever been around me long enough, you know that hope for me is not an easy path. It requires commitment. It requires passion. It requires blood, sweat, and tears. Nonetheless, hope is still a powerful way of being in the world. I didn't need to list the data this morning. I realize preaching to a group of Unitarian Universalists or UU-friendly folks about the climate crisis is preaching to the literal choir. A lion's share of you use our members and contributors to some sort of nature-affirming organization. The Sierra Club, Nature Conservancy, Wild Ones, perhaps you support the Arboretum, Raven Run, World Wildlife Federation, and so on and so on and so, oh, so on. My household supports more than five by my count. But I also don't need to talk about the data because we need only look to what's happening in the world today. While this Kentucky morning has been by many uh, accounts in Eden-esque experience. 
The sun over Kentucky has been hazy for weeks thanks to wildfire smoke from Canada and the western United States. Entire German villages and towns have been washed away by floods. Droughts plague the west and the east. The term heat dome has entered our common lexicon due to several heat waves across the country and more are yet to come. And if we take a moment to step away from the politicization of migrants at our border, we will discover that beyond Republicans and Democrats, beyond the story that people like to tell that Central and Southern American governments, governments are just so corrupt, though those factors are still a part of it. Another factor is climate change. We never heard much in the United States about the 600,000 people displaced in Honduras, Guatemala, and Nicaragua by hurricanes Eta and Iota. 80% of the agricultural sector in Honduras was destroyed by those storms. We are seeing the beginning of climate refugees. Now is probably a good time for us to just take a couple breaths and check in with how we're feeling. This is a lot. It is a lot. And either individually or as a community, we cannot fix it alone. But we can be aware. We can do something. But most importantly, we can help change the narrative in how we talk about climate change. The climate crisis is here. It's not the worst it'll ever be, but it's here. Al Gore would say it's been here longer than I've been alive. Many of you might remember, you may have even said it yourself back in the 90s, you might remember this, especially if you're from a northern city during long Chicago winters, people would quip with little effort about climate change. They would always begin with, let me tell you what I think about climate change. Why is it so dang cold, right? It was a prime time punchline. And if only we knew, some of you did. Changing the narrative about the climate crisis isn't just about reminding people that it's already here. Though it needs to begin there. There needs to be no room for debate. This isn't something where we want to hear both sides anymore. And I hate saying that sentence. Let me tell you, I do not like saying that sentence. I am a middle-of-the-way person as best as possible. But I'm really struggling with the tension, with misinformation with conspiracy. If rational dialogue hasn't convinced deniers all these years, it's time to just speak the truth plainly. And that tension applies to a lot these days. The earth is not flat. Vaccines work. Yes, we've been to the moon. Chemtrails are not a thing. There's no such thing as lizard people disguised as humans. QAnon is dangerous and absurd and climate change is real. If that's divisive, then you can call me Reverend Divisive. We begin with listening to science, with trusting science as a varied process and not a monolithic entity. But there's also a point where we, as a religious community, move from facts to truth. Now, there are people who've written volumes upon volumes of theses defining those words, fact and truth. I'm not going to start there. Though I believe the two can be linked, the facts of the climate crisis lead to a somber, heartbreaking truth. Now is the time for us to grieve, to adapt, to make ready our hearts and minds for what is yet to come. 
I say that and I want to hide under the covers at home. I want to disappear into some remote part of the world and ignore it all. I want to make peace with the idea that I will likely not live to see the worst of it. Many, if not all of us, won't live to see the worst of it. But here's where I think hope, a rough, unpolished, gritty hope, can start to emerge. There are gifts to be found in grieving. In July 2018, a man by the name of Dr. Jem Bendel published a paper titled Deep Adaptation, a Map for Navigating Climate Tragedy. I won't summarize all the points he makes for you. It's freely available online. But the gist of it is this, and he, he theorizes that we are on the cusp of possible societal collapse as the climate crisis disrupts political, economic, and social systems. Now, I wouldn't recommend this paper for bedtime reading. So disruptive was the idea put forth, the paper never passed peer review, and Dr. Bendel published it himself. And there are visceral reactions to it. Many academics have rejected it outright, calling it apocalyptic, doomist, and poorly researched. Several people have accepted its premise. A deep adaptation forum has emerged online. Communities are being organized to explore this topic. Some clergy circles, including Unitarian Universalist ministers, have started to see this conversation as a part of ministry in 2021. And many others still look to this and, yes, realize it is apocalyptic. They praise it for its alarmist tone, but also believe there's still hope. I still believe there's hope. I am grateful to Dr. Bendel for ripping the band-aid off of a future possibility. And that's what it is. It's a possibility amongst possibilities. Just as I'm grateful for the UN, for NASA, and so on for listing facts plainly. We don't know exactly what the future will hold, but I feel it's important for us to feel the existential threat. Not knowing just how deep and wide the threat goes, but to know that it's all on the table. All those possibilities, the doomest apocalyptic possibilities, and then the fact that life will still be hard in some way in the future. The climate crisis is what's called a wicked problem. Racism, injustice, pandemics, and climate change are classic examples of wicked problems. There's no one-size-fits-all solution, and there is no easy solution. And while I'm in no position to judge the factualness or the level of research of Dr. Bendel's self-published paper, I have read people in favor and opposed to it. And I tend to lean on the facts presented plainly about what we're facing. But there is a truth to Bendel's paper that is existentially humbling. We are called, we need to adapt to the idea that the climate crisis is no longer avoidable. Where's the hope in that, you might wonder, right? Jonathan Franz, in writing for The New Yorker, brings Kafka into the answer to answer that question. And he quotes Kafka in an article about the climate crisis. And Kafka writes, There is infinite hope, only not for us. There's infinite hope, only not for us. But Franzen turns that phrase upside down a bit and rephrases it. 
There is no hope except for us. Now, I feel there's a freedom to be found in admitting it's too late. That might be hard to hear. You might want to argue with that, and that's okay. But the freedom I find in admitting that is that there's an urgency to defend the basic structures of the world we inhabit, to transform them. We may come to a point where free-flowing ice water isn't readily available, but protecting democracy, investing in communities that work for those on the margins, that work for everyone, fighting for an equitable legal and justice system, combating wealth inequality, confronting the immigration crisis, gender and racial equality and equity, name the issue. There is a case to be made that anything that ensures our communities, our democracy, our global society, anything that ensures continued health of those structures, that is something we can do to weather what is yet to come with the climate crisis. That is where the hope comes in. Whether you look to Kafka or Franz in both statements can have truth. There is infinite hope, but we may not live to see it come to pass. And there is no hope for averting the climate crisis, except we can strengthen the very things that may help us endure. We are going to need one another more than ever. And I will not surrender to the idea that it's game over. Instead, I will grieve. Grieve for this beautiful planet. Grieve for those who continue to ignore this. I'll grieve for myself, for you, who will live to see the worst of this, for my nephews, my nieces. Grieve for the loss of species, the loss of so many things unnamed this morning. Grief is not an evil thing. It's a visceral reminder of our love for the earth, for animals and plants and insects, for the joys of life, for each other, for ourselves, for so much. And if we allow ourselves to start grieving now, to keep grieving, for it never goes away completely, we will remember that love. And the hope, that hope that we discover is a renewed urgency to support the health of what will stave off the worst instincts, our worst instincts, when the climate crisis deepens. And so I wonder, what would it look like if we started to look at our justice commitments, our environmental passions, our gender and racial and LGBTQ and accessibility and so on, equity and equality obligations, our advocacy for a just and fair society, our commitment for welcoming and refuge, we could keep going. I wonder if we started to reframe it as part and parcel of the climate crisis. That these are the things that will strengthen and support us, that will guide us through our grief toward the new normal, toward discovering what may be possible in that new normal. And I believe it has to begin now. It has to begin with us. It has to begin with teaching the next generation. It has to begin with us saying plainly, it's time to adapt. But hope is not lost. Blessed be. Amen.